All right, so today we're going to continue with our series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. We are on element 6N. Element 6 is receiving Jesus Christ, responding to the gospel. For those of you who are somewhat new or newer, uh, there's been about a 150-year trend to reduce the gospel to uh, its uh, smallest form or most condensed form and so forth. But uh, there's also been a tendency, actually, to kind of rewrite it in some areas that we're trying to address in this series and so forth. And um, so uh, what we're trying to do is, this is probably the longest explanation of the gospel you'll ever hear. I think we're, uh, if you look at the small print there, we're on the 63rd lesson. The date is wrong, because I actually started this outline for last Sunday and then went another direction last Sunday. So the date should be August 21st. But this is the 63rd lesson in our eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel, which I'm estimating will finish out at about 125 to 150 lessons, somewhere in there. And I'm pretty dedicated to making sure we finish it this school year uh, so that I can do an even longer series that will take around three years called the Kingdom of God series. But anyway... uh, So this is all the crazy stuff I think of when I spend hours in my study reading. So here we go. So uh, element six is basically the idea of receiving Jesus Christ. The the gospel has to be responded to. And so um, we're all the way through to element six. And we've looked at words like uh, conviction, confession, being drawn by God, contrition, repentance, remorse, renunciation, restitution, reconciliation, so forth. Last week, we started looking at faith. Faith is a very misunderstood concept today, even among Christians. Um, Now, the world misunderstands faith, and Christians misunderstand faith from kind of two different directions. The world uh, assumes that faith is kind of some kind of an irrational leap that you make blindly. And uh, the world might say that you build as reasonable of a case as you can, and then you jump the rest of the gap. And the truth of the matter is, is when you are an unbeliever, you are living that way. Most of the things you assume in, in, in a materialistic or evolutionary worldview are based on things that are not, uh, that there's no evidence for. You're making assumptions about reality. They're called postulates or axioms. And you build your whole world on assumptions that that everyone in a culture holds to, but that are not necessarily proven. They're just assumed. That's why we would use the word axiomatically. They're assumed to be true. And most of our Western culture today is is non-theistic. And it's what's called materialistic or naturalistic, anti-supernatural. Even among Christians, there's not much of an emphasis on the supernatural. Um, Even though the Bible presents us uh, a world where there's angels, demons, and more importantly, the power of God's Holy Spirit active in the world today. So um, the the. In Western culture, we have found ways to deny the realities thereof ever since the Enlightenment. And that has a lot to do with explaining why the gospel is exploding in all non-Western cultures, but it's shrinking in America. 
Um, you know, if you go anywhere in Central and South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, China, South Korea, the gospel is exploding through most of the world. And the, the forms of, of Christianity that are exploding are definitely Pentecostal charismatic forms. They're also uh, forms that assume that the church in the book of, the, of Acts is normative, whereas in the West, we began shortly after the Civil War to assume that uh, the world of the epistles is normative and that we uh, began to develop theologies that could help us be more comfortable with the fact that our Christianity doesn't look much like the Gospels or the book Acts. That's basically, in, in an essence, the theological direction of the last 150 years in American Christianity is developing paradigms or hermeneutical principles of how to interpret the Bible that help us feel more at home with the fact that our Christianity doesn't look much like the book of Acts or like the Gospels. So uh, that's what we've been kind of addressing in this series. Now, on, in terms of faith, again, the, the, the unbelievers kind of look at it as an irrational leap. Most Christians, unfortunately, look at it as somewhat of an intellectual assent to certain ideas or doctrines. But biblical faith, uh, we have seven statements clarifying biblical faith down at the bottom of your first page. And this is just review from last week. But biblical faith involves following, trusting in, clinging to. It's first and foremost a relational word. And it's an experiential word. It comes out of God revealing himself in such a way, not that you hope it's true, but that you know that you know that you know that he is true because he has convinced you that he that every man is a liar, yet God is true. And our faith is, is based on a type of evidence that's not necessarily empirical scientific evidence, nor is it based on reason. It's not anti-rational, but, it, but reason alone, because of man's fallen nature, man's fallen nature runs from God, tries to suppress the truth of God and so forth. So man's un, unaided reason can never be neutral. It's always deceived in and of itself. And the only way we can, we can realize that every person has an intuitive knowledge of God that God has put in their spirit. Uh, the heavens tell of the glory of God, Psalm 19 and Psalm 8 and other things like this. The only way, though, we can come to acknowledge that is when God draws us and convicts us. And the word convict actually means convinces us. And so, you know, Paul was able to say, I know him in whom I have believed. Despite Paul's great education, the basis for true faith is not great education, and it's not ideas. It's experience with the spirit and power of God in such a way that you know, that you know, that you know that he is the spirit of truth and that he is bearing witness of all the biblical and historical facts of Jesus Christ. In John 15, 26, Jesus said, when the spirit of truth comes, the helper, um, that's parakletos in the Greek, translated comforter, helper, uh, advocates, counselor sometimes. Uh, when he comes, he will... Con uh, bear witness of me. And then verse 27, he says, you also will bear witness of me because you've been with me from the beginning. So just like in a court of law, we, we decide truth or falsehood based on eyewitness testimonies 
and evidence, the evidence of Christ is the Holy Spirit himself and the testimony of the witnesses, the apostles and, the, and so forth, uh, the women who, who arrived at the tomb the first morning and all these things and, that have been historically preserved for us. And you yourself are, should be a testimony of Christ. Well, this is what he did in my life. And so that's why in Acts 5.31, the apostles are t- talking to the Sanhedrin and they, and they talk about the Holy Spirit uh, bearing witness who God has given to everyone who obeys the Lord. And so, um, faith is relational and experiential. It's a type of knowledge. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. It's not scientific knowledge. The question of origins of the universe is not a scientific question. Because science deals with what can be repeated. You can, you have to... For science to exist, you have to develop a hypothesis, and you have to uh, develop experiments to test that hypothesis, and it can only tell you about what is true now. It's not, there's a concept called uniformitarianism, which basically says this. Uh, Most scientists believe today that all current scientific processes that are at work in the earth and the universe have always been the scientific laws. But nobody knows that for sure. Who's to say God didn't change them at a certain point in time? All science can tell us is about what happens today in experiments. It has no, no, nothing that it can weigh in on in terms of origins. It's the wrong type of knowledge. Historical knowledge, legal knowledge, you might call it, uh, is good, but but obviously their spiritual knowledge. And I tell people my testimony on this all the time. I was raised as a thorough evolutionist in a totally humanistic way. And I, it never occurred to me that there weren't millions and millions of years and never bothered me that from the time I was in grade school till the time I was in high school, the earth went from 2.8 billion years to 4.2 billion years old. Because I thought, man, I'm really taking a long time to get from sixth grade to 10th grade. But, uh, you know, but uh, then, you know, by the time I graduated college, it was six or seven billion years old. Now it's eight or nine billion years old. I'm aging well, don't you think? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, uh, you know, uh, that's all I had ever known. I never thought there was any other position until I became a Christian. And the first time I read Genesis 1, I remember crying out to God and going, do you want us to believe this is what really happened? This is historically accurate truth. And I could tell the Holy Spirit was saying yes. I've been a creationist and a six-day creationist ever since. Now, I've read hundreds of books on the subject now. I would love to debate any biologist anytime, anywhere. But I... uh, Ultimately, it's not based on science. It's not a scientific question. And reality is based uh, for Christians on what the Spirit of God has written in the Word of God. And it's not just a dead letter that we believe the abstract ideas, but it's a living relationship. Jesus Christ is the living Word whom the written Word is about, and it's an encounter with God in such a way that He 
convinces you that you know that you know that you know that he is true, that he is the spirit of truth. That's real faith. Now, flipping your page over, that was a little bit of a review from last week. Today I want to talk about grace. Because Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, I've given us uh, the, the full ESV version and one line of the New American Standard Version. If, in the ESV, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace works through faith. And faith, as we know, is initiated by God, sustained by God, and perfected and grows by God. He is the author and finisher of our faith. If you are in Christ today and have true faith, you had nothing to do with it. Except you responded to what he convinced you of. He drew you by his irresistible grace. He convinced you, and he caused you to stop running from God and, and acknowledge the truth. You know, we like to stand up and give testimonies of how we've been seeking all our life and so forth, and I'll, whenever someone gives a testimony like that, I love to stand up and go, liar. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, no one was seeking for God, the Bible says. There's not, none that turns to God. There's no, not one. God draws you. No one can come to the, Father less, uh, to the Son unless the Father draws him. God convinces you. And he grants you the repentance that leads to life, as we've covered abundantly over the last, oh, 15 weeks or so. So, by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of your own doing, the ESV says. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works that no one should boast. See, if you really understand grace and faith, there's no room left at all for pride of, of any kind. You're a Christian today despite of yourself. For we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He recreates us, and we do good works, but we don't, we don't do works to be received of God or accepted of God. We do works out of the fact that we are accepted of God. We love him back because he first loved us. And the, if you have trouble being on fire for God, go back to your understanding of the love of God and the grace of God and the gospel. Because the more you understand the grace of God and truth, the more you'll be a radical, crazy, obnoxious, over-the-top, hopefully you'll gain some wisdom to go with your zeal-over-time Christian. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, I love the kind of Christian that you kind of have to, like, settle him down just a little bit. Like, let's put this guy in jail for, like, four years till he learns some wisdom because he's certainly got plenty of zeal. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's easier to uh, direct a ship that's moving than, a, you know, it's hard to light a fire under people. So uh, what Paul is trying to emphasize here is that grace, when he says it's not of ourselves, that it's not initiated by us, it's not derived from us, it's not sustained by us, and it doesn't grow by our initiative. Even though the gospel is telling us to repent, to believe, even though the Bible is full of admonitions to seek him, and so forth, 
All of those are initiated by God, and if we are granted ears to hear them, Jesus said in John 5, there's a time will come when the dead will hear my voice. He's not talking about the, later in the chapter, he's talking about those who have physically died, but he's talking about the condition of all mankind. There, a time will come when the dead will hear my voice, and whoever hears my voice will live. And whoever hears his voice is the person who he healed their spiritual ears. That's the whole point of Lazarus come forth and his healing those who are born blind and his healing those who are born deaf. Because we're all born blind, deaf, dumb, stupid, and lost. And those who hear his voice live. So, um, I want to, I, I don't know if this is going to take two weeks or one, but points uh, 7A and 7B on your outline, uh, I'm either going to do in two weeks or one. Uh, 7A is that we're going to review some things. from. If you know, we have in, in this church, we're called Grace Christian Fellowship, because I consider that the most foundational concept to get a hold of. And probably one of the most misunderstood concepts in our day. And um, so we have a series called the Grace Upon Grace series that's 16 messages. And we really try to encourage everyone to listen to it until it really starts to change you. Uh, because uh, what we're going to look at today, hopefully if we get that far, far, maybe not. Point B, which may get pushed into next week and be a separate message, but point B is that staying grace-based is everyone's lifelong struggle. You have to reposition yourself according to grace every day. So, and you can tell when you're walking in grace, because when you're walking in grace, you are his workmanship, uh, created in Christ Jesus, for good works in the fruits of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, the will of God for your family, for your job, for your study habits, for all kinds of things will come out of that. If you're not living an obedient, following God lifestyle, then you're not really understanding grace correctly. It's as simple as that. So, First thing I want to do is review some things from our Grace Upon Grace series. Uh, I believe the first message is something like Grace Defined or Grace Revisited or something. I forget the title of it, but we define grace in that series, in the, in the first message. Um, I kind of forget which messages are which because there were 16 messages but only six outlines. Um, so sometimes one outline took two or three weeks. But the... Whether you're Roman Catholic or whether you're Evangelical Protestant today or liberal Protestant, all three of those groups, interestingly, in other words, all Western Christians, define grace as God's undeserved favor. That's pretty good, right? And as I always say, uh, that would be like saying, my good friend Davion is a guy who lives on Elberon Street. That's true, isn't it? But you, you might say, come on, give me a little more about it, Davion. <laughs> you know? And uh, because it's not, a good, it's not enough definition. 
So the problem with definitions of grace today is everyone says it's unmerited favor or undeserved favor, and that is very foundational. God chose you despite yourself. And in fact, God has this, you know, Paul was a murderer, etc. The disciples were, were people who misunderstand the culture, but they were guys that grew up in Galilee, in mostly in Capernaum, Nazareth, and other cities nearby. In those days, you would memorize the whole five, first five books of the Bible by the time you were 12, and most of the rest of the Jewish scriptures that we call the Old Testament. And those who were the top students would be invited by different rabbis to come and be discipled by them, to travel with them, to live with them, to understand their way of interpreting the books of, of the Old Testament. So most of Jesus' disciples, they were not untrained and uneducated men, as in Acts 4, 13, the Pharisees tried to pull. And, you know, the average Christian believes Acts 4, 13, but that was what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were saying about the disciples. It's not true. They were very educated men. I don't know any pastors today. I don't know a single pastor that's as educated in the things of the Scripture as the average Jewish kid was back then. So, not even our people who are doctorates teaching at our Christian colleges. They memorized most of what we called the Old Testament by the age of 12. And their whole life, the whole thing about the rabbis was, who's going to be the real interpreter? That's why when Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, they, they were so amazed. He go, they were like, oh, wow, this rabbi Jesus, he's the true interpreter. Finally, we're hearing some stuff that's not full of nonsense. He's teaching as one who actually has authority and not like the scribes and Pharisees of that day who were using all the wrong biblical hermeneutics and paradigms to interpret Scripture. Right? So, I don't know how I got on that. I've got to work my way back to my outline. Uh, you know, there's always different atmospheres in, in Christian milieu and what uh, zeitgeist, you might call it, the worldview of Christians in our day that influence us greatly. And today, the average Christian thinks that grace is first undeserved favor, and faith has to do with uh, a merely abstract intellectual assent to the right ideas. But in James 2.19, he says, do you believe God is one? Well, you're doing pretty well. Even the demons believe that and are afraid. But whose side are you really on? That's you can tell by your behavior and lots of other things. So, grace goes beyond being chosen of God, uh, as the disciples were, and it goes to being empowered by God. And so that's what the Pharisees were astounded at. That's how I got into all this. In Acts 4, 4 is because it says that when they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and realized, hey, they didn't go, when they said they're untrained and educated men, it was kind of like a Harvard snob saying, well, you're not very bright because you went to the right state, you know, or something. Uh, they were basically being snobs. They were very trained and very educated men. They just hadn't gone to the Pharisees or the San, 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 Sanhedrin school, the Pharisees or the Sadducee school of thinking. And so it says when they observed their confidence they recognize them as having been with Jesus. They're like, wow, these guys are talking like and behaving like 
this Jesus guy that we thought we got rid of. And we can tell they hung out with him because the spirit of them, the attitude of them, the deeds of them, the things they're saying, they're all like, obviously, because they've been hanging out with Jesus. We got to stop this. Fortunately, uh, Gamaliel, who was actually the Pharisee who discipled Paul prior to his conversion, stepped in and said, you know, I would leave these guys alone because uh, you remember this rebellion happened and that rebellion and so forth. And, and he basically says, if this plan or action that they're about is from God, you won't be able to stop it. And if it's not from God, it'll fall apart on its own. But be careful that you don't find yourself in the position of fighting against God. It's good advice for different Christian movements that everyone wants to comment on all the time. I, lo I love how the internet is full of uneducated comments on what every other Christian is doing. Do what you're called to do. <laughs> so, grace goes beyond being chosen. And it empowers them. The disciples were empowered because it says that Jesus prayed all night and he appointed the 12 to send them out to preach and teach. It doesn't say that, does it? I skipped a line, right? The most important line. In Mark 4, 13, it says that he appointed the 12 that they might be with him. You know, there's a certain thing, you know, pastorally, one of the things I can tell over time with people is I can tell who's hanging out with Jesus and who's not. And no matter how much good counsel, I study all the schools of counseling, I, we try very hard, no matter how much you put in to people, you can't really get there anywhere if they're not hanging out with Jesus. It's as simple as that. You just can't. So a lot of the time, you know, when someone's having this or that, the other struggle, and they're, especially when they're ongoing and so forth, I, I want to first examine, like, what do you understand about the gospel? And what is your experience with the power of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God? Because you'll love him back when, he, when you've received his love. We love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. So grace is divine enablement. It's empowerment equipped by his glory. The more you touch, like uh, Paul says, that we, that we transmit the fragrance of God or the aroma of God from place to place and from glory to glory. The, every time you touch the glory of God in your prayer closet or in a great worship setting alone or with some brothers and sisters, every time you really touch the presence of God, it's transformative. And when, it, and when you constantly live a lifestyle where you're not just, you know, when you're first a Christian, you know, I encourage people to come to Friday night fellowship and the midweek prayer meetings and different things, so that, and especially to spend time with God every day because what the, the battle for a young Christian is getting in the presence of God in a powerful way that's transformative maybe a few times a week. But what God's trying to do is from there launch you into a place where that's where you live 
That's why Paul was astounded when he's talking to the Corinthians and he says, I had to write to you like spiritual babies because you're living like mere men. Like what's going on in the Corinthian church is like a place where humans live. That's not supposed to be happening in a Christian church. A Christian church isn't supposed to be full of people who act like ordinary men. It's supposed to be filled with supermen. You know, there's a reason why people like all that. I had Logan educate me on, what do you call them again? Superheroes. And uh, the truth of the matter is the reason some of that stuff is attractive is because of the way we were made by God. And you were meant to be a superhero. What your superpower should be is the, is the Holy Spirit. And it should be quite apparent when people get around you. All right, then we went through a thing called grace plus theologies. And no matter how you slice it, this is actually going to be important for, you know, what I'm going to end up with, and I spent too much time reviewing the definition of grace. This is all on our podcast. The outlines are available. Talk to my executive assistant, Stephen Leopold. He'll email them to you. Uh, they're all, you know, they're all uh, available. We have them. Um, but please, listen to the whole Grace series. Six outlines, 16 messages, and it will radically change your Christian life. Every person I've ever asked to read that, especially, or listen to it, has said, well, I've grown up in Christianity. I want to know all this stuff already. I've gone to church all my life. And, and I don't think, you know, are you talking a whole 16-part series on grace? And then they listen to it, and they go, wow, that changed my whole life. Because until you really start touching grace, you'll be stuck in the starting blocks of the Christian life. The gun will have gone off, and you'll still be like in the starting blocks while Usain Bolt's on the stand getting his gold medal. <laughs> you know, and you'll be like, when does, that, when does the race start? So, um, grace empowers you and equips you by encountering the glory of God. Now, everyone has an approach to grace, and there are five possible ones, and here they are. They're not in your outline, because I didn't have room for them. One is works leads to favor. Grace and favor mean the same thing. So a lot of views of Christianity start with, well, if I do all the right things, then God will be happy with me. Many Christians are stuck there. And that is a most unfortunate situation because all religions of the world except Christianity teach that. Yet unfortunately, many Christians have that understanding uh, that if I do the right things, God will accept me. Second possibility, lost my place here, is that works plus grace leads to favor. So, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of evangelicals and a lot of Roman Catholics today, if you really get down to talking to them about their understanding of the gospel and so forth, there's a little grace mixed in there and a little performance, and then it's never quite clear which comes first or which has got to be dominant or how it exactly works. And um, so you're kind of grace-based and you're kind of work-based and you're covering all your bases. And uh, 
that uh, is most unfortunate. Another approach is, is grace by works. Especially, this is very common in evangelicalism today, in fundamentalism. They, like most evangelicals, get it that I got started by grace. But the whole point of Paul's letter to the Galatians, make sure you, you get a hold of what I call reading the reverse negative. The very fact that Galatians exist is telling us something right there. Because so many Christians start by grace and change to performance. Well, now that you've been received by Jesus and his unmerited favor and the blood of Jesus and you met him at the foot of the cross undeservingly, now do this, 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 and this, and this to stay acceptable to him. That's called grace plus works. It's called, you start by grace and you grow by works. And it's the Galatian crisis and it's probably the deepest crisis in Western Christianity today. Most Christians are living there. And it, it, one of the reasons it's attractive is we're going to look at, hopefully today or next week, I don't know how long it's going to take, is it avoids the scandal of grace. Because grace is a scandal. I know most of you, <laughs> and you know me. And it's like, what is God up to that he would choose the likes of you or me? Like, does he not know what he's doing? He, there's no, he, I mean, it's almost blasphemous to talk like that, but it's, I'm trying to, the, tr the truth is God delights in, in, the reason you're in Christ today is because God delights in taking the least likely suspect <laughs> and turning them around. You know, he starts with murderers, and guys who didn't get chosen by the Pharisees, and you <laughs> and me <laughs> because that is to the greater glory of his grace it's, you know god's like i got john great converted no 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 like wow nobody could have done that no human being can pull that off you fill in your name it's kind of like he delights and take you know like you know, God is, you know, so outside our ways. Like, I, when I'm building something, I, I buy the most expensive, best quality building materials. And God just starts with, like, all the broken bricks, the drywall that got soggy and ruined and, and has mold problems, you know, and, and the, the two-by-fours that are in the reject pile for being converted and so forth. And he... And he's like, okay, we're going to build this glorious temple. <laughs> okay, God, you know what you're doing. I certainly don't. All right. Grace plus works is a tragedy. Grace plus perversion is uh, where a lot of people live. And that's turning the grace of God into licentiousness. And that's basically saying, because I'm under grace... I shouldn't be all that scared that I'm still doing internet pornography or... Yes, you should. You'll be fortunate if God doesn't kill you. <laughs> no, you know, we take, like... Here's, here's the problem. Your forgiveness costs God himself to become a man and to die. And the Bible warns about those who trample underfoot the blood of Jesus... 
and says that in some cases it's impossible to renew them unto repentance. And I, I patiently wait. We, you know, God has given us uh, a ministry in this church of really working with broken, troubled people. But sometimes God will bring someone here that takes about eight years just to get started. Because in, you know, like, it, let's just say, let's, you know, say you have a pornography problem since that's so common among young men today. And, and unfortunately, young ladies starting to be. Uh, you know, the, there are some ways you can flee youthful lust practically, right? You could give someone else the password to your computer and you don't have it anymore, so you only can use it when you're being observed by someone. You can, definitely, you know, you can, you can do some things to, to uh, cry out to God for repentance. And if you're not, then, I, then you're trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus lightly. You're in a most dangerous place. You know, I'll, I get a little frustrated sometimes, like guys who, like, five years into discipling them, I'm still having trouble with I never spend time with Jesus. And sometimes I just get a, like, a little bit more like, well, let me just lovingly, as we've always talked, grab you by the shirt and slap you around a little bit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, grace is available. And the Bible says all kind of things like, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness spring up and by it many be defiled. Are you still struggling with bitterness and unforgiveness? Are you, do you still kind of judge how most people uh, behave and treat you with too much criticism and too harshness and, and not, no graciousness? Are you harder on others than you are on yourself? Then I'm telling you, you're at the starting point of this grace thing. And that we, the, the problem with this grace plus licentiousness issue in the church today is thousands and thousands have prayed the sinner's prayer and go to church and they're not really started. And there are multitudes, multitudes in the valley of that decision. I would hate to know what percentage of American Bible-believing Christians are, are living there. But it's pretty scary. And I'm not preaching works. I'm preaching that if you have grace, it will create, recreate you to be his workmanship, to do his works. So if the, if the fruit of grace isn't in your life, don't just go back to trying harder. Go back to rethinking who he is and what his mercy is about and what the gospel is and what he did on the cross. And cry out to God, why hasn't this impacted me? Why am I not looking more like the Apostle Paul than, than uh, Barney the Purple Dinosaur? <laughs> you know, or something. You know, uh, Jesus got mad in, the, in Revelation 3 at people who were lukewarm. And our modern translations say, spew you out of my mouth. It's the King James and then. Uh, spit you. But it means I'm going to vomit you. <laughs> like, 
personally, I drink, I'm so addicted to coffee, I drink it cold, hot, lukewarm. I don't care, but, but apparently Jesus likes his coffee fresh, brewed, and hot, <laughs> or cold, iced tea or something. But he, but he doesn't like it just like the way where most of us live some lackadaisical, complacent, uh, medium, mediocre Christian life. And there's just not Christians in the Bible living like that. So if what we actually had was really biblical, show me someone who's living like you're living that's in the church in the book of Acts. Definitely not going to get into the second part of this message today. Oh, well. Maybe you should come back next week. And here there is. Um, where were we? Grace plus licentiousness. Or perversion. Grace requires nothing. Many Christians live in grace requires nothing. And that's just not true. Everyone who has kids knows that I love my kids. I was I had a wonderful time with Edwin and Beth at the wedding yesterday at Sam's brother's wedding. And never been in a room with 800 people from Kenya and Rwanda. And uh, it, it was wonderful. And we're talking about theology for a while. And I was talking... Uh, Beth went to do something, so Edwin and I are talking about how much he loves little Elijah. And I love when a man has his first kid because you learn so much about God. Because you're overwhelmed by this love for this kid that's really no explanation for. He doesn't do much. He, you know, he pees his pants and he poops and he and he cries and he sleeps. He he slept through a lot yesterday. He's an amazing sleeper. And uh He's got like a world record. We're sitting right by the speaker and the thing, and the kid's still sleeping. And, uh, but you love this kid like your heavenly father loves you for no reason. And he doesn't even do anything yet. He can't, like, do the rumba or speak three languages or anything. But every father knows I love this kid, so as he grows, I'm going to require a great deal out of him. I'm going to require character and discipline and good grades and that he respects his mother. And that's like with the, like my kids were growing up. If they said something disrespectful to their mother, ooh, baby, that's when it really hit the fan. And uh, they met my po post posterior paddle of stimulation or something but um you're going to require love requires things of people you know my wife said i know you love me but quit forgetting the trash night is wednesday <laughs> you know love requires things grace plus grace or grace upon grace is that you start by grace, you grow by grace, you continue in grace, and you finish by grace. And that is the only biblical option that's really biblical. And very few Christians live there. And next week, I'm going to focus on getting, talking to us about how to get there. Today, in my remaining time, I'm going to remind us that there's a thing called attitudes and actions for appropriating grace. Grace is, grace is a gross growth word. There's all kinds of verses that say grow in grace. It even says that Jesus grew in grace and wisdom and favor with God and men. 
242 or something like that. So um, I, I don't like normally when there people do sermons with three C's or four H's, but once in a while I do it. Uh, this one I did four H's. Humility, honesty, hunger, and holistic. And I really wanted to spend some time on this stuff today, so I'll spend my remaining, I really have two minutes, but I'll cheat a little and go over. What are they going to do, shoot me? Um, that wouldn't be very gracious. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right. You know what? People who don't seek God, first thing you should ask yourself is, is God helped you have enough humility? Because a lot of people who don't spend time alone with God, deep down, they think, God, I got this. You know, if, if you're not desperate for God then you're not actually seeing reality. Someone who actually sees reality is very desperate for God. What we should have to counsel regularly is, no, you can't spend 18 hours a day with God. You have a job. <laughs> you know? No, you can't spend 18 hours a day seeking God because you're married and you have kids and the trash needs taken out on Wednesday nights. <laughs> I have known very few Christians in my life, I've known a few, that basically we've had to say, uh, this was said to me as a young Christian, the, the elders of the church called me in and they said, Greg, you're not to read the Bible more than three hours on a given day till you're done with your homework and you've hung up the posters for the church and you've mowed the church lawn and you've done the other things we've asked you to do because I would read the Bible eight hours a day if I could. And I, I just, it scares me for the current culture that we don't have more of that kind of problem. Like, listen, kid, I'm glad you like to read the Bible three hours a day and be alone with God and that you turn off your phones and no one can reach you and you're really you're changed by the glory of God. But you got to go pull at least a B in algebra, you know, <laughs> things like that. It's scary to me that there's no humility and hunger for God in our land. I'm going to jump down to hunger for a minute, and then I'll go back up to honesty. Hunger is something you can develop. If you don't know what I'm talking about, get into our Search the Scripture series, part one. There's a whole section of it about how to grow a hunger. Hunger and thirst are good things. You can... You can change what you're hungering and thirsting for. And you've got to be like, as the deer pants, Psalm 42, so my soul pants after you, O oh God. Last thing is this is honesty, and then next week we'll get into grace versus performance, our long struggle. Honesty is about truth in the innermost being. Here's what I have discovered by the grace of God. I've been in a very relationally oriented community type of Christianity since 1974. And uh, I did go through a brief period where we kind of went and explored what was sort of out there in evangelicalism. And in the churches that, you know, see you on Sunday and midweek Bible service kind of thing and all that. But the bottom line is this in relationships. Whenever there's any dishonesty that comes into a relationship, 
from there, it's like going down the wrong path. It's like you're heading on 75 to, to Florida. You get off to get gas, and you get back on going north. From wherever that point where you're hiding, you're not humble, you're not being honest, you're living in that uh, contemporary Christianity that everything's okay and I'm and so forth, and you've got nobody you're accountable to and nobody you're getting humble with and nobody you're being honest with, and you're, you're not identifying where you're really at. That's why Adam, God said to Adam, Adam, where are you? It wasn't that God didn't know. He was aware that Adam didn't know. That's why self-deception is a major issue in the New Testament, especially in the later books of James, Jude, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Self-deception is when you don't really analyze where you're at right. So you're presenting a false you. The word hypocrisis that we get hypocrite from means a play-action mask. It was the mask they used in Greek theater that had a happy face or so forth, and it means that you're putting on false mask. And what happens is people get to a point where they're even doing that with themselves and with God. And whenever you start there, you the, for everything else that you're going to do in that relationship will be destroying that relationship. It'll be getting worse and worse and worse. And people get into relationships in church and marriage and business, and like they're like, well, it started so good, and then, you know, one day we ended up here, and it's a mess. And the reason people get there is they're not being honest with themselves or with God. You know, if you're insecure and what's, you know, if I am worried about what Roy thinks of me, I don't try to like act all confident. I go to Roy and say, Roy, I think you think I'm a knucklehead. I might, I need some reassurance. Are you, are we still friends? Are you still with me? You know, it's been a long time since we met for breakfast at Bob Evans. Is everything okay with you and, and you toward me and me toward you? See, you, if you if there's no honesty, if there's no reality, from there, once that principle is introduced into a relationship, everything else that happens based on, is based on everyone, each person having a false reading of the other person, and it's all destruction from there. Now, you might have a good enough foundation that the destruction takes a year or two to really work out. Or it might just take a few weeks if you don't have a lot of history together. But once you're not honest with who you are before God... And you're trying to do that one-upsmanship and, and pre present yourself as all, as, as all spiritual and so forth, like is so common today. The rest of it is just destruction. I'm going to end with that, and I'll pick up with that next week, and we'll talk about why uh, a tendency to go back to being performance-based is deep in our nature, and it's our lifelong struggle to always get back to being grace-based. Amen.